you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. There are literally hundreds, I suppose thousands, of religions in the world. And one of the questions that people frequently ask is, since there are so many, how can we know which one is right? How can we know which one is truth? And there are three, basically three major ways of dealing with this problem. The first is to suggest that all religions are more or less equal, at least if they are pursued sincerely. Many people in the past uh, have thought along these lines. Edward Gibbon uh, composed a rather cynical expression of this idea in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said that to the common people, all religions were equally true. To the philosophers, they were equally false. And to the magistrates, they were equally useful. Uh, today, sometimes, you hear that thought expressed as an idea of where there's an image of a mountain. And they uh, will say, God is on top of the mountain. And the religions of the world are like roads going up to the mountain from various sides. Some go up the east side, some the west, the north, the south, but they all take you to the same place in the end. That is the characteristic solution of American pluralism. And sadly, uh, of some who name themselves uh, evangelicals uh, in our culture today. The second way of dealing with the problem is to say that although all of the religions of the world uh, have some value, at least to their followers, some are better than others. Uh, and it follows from this that one of these religions, whichever one it might be, would be the best of all of them. So this view allows everyone to believe that his or her religion is, if not the best, at least superior to others. But it also imposes the task of seeking which one is the best, which is what many people think that they are doing. The third view, the Christian view, is that there is only one way to come to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ and that the other religions of the world are not coming to God rather they are running away from him uh, there's a lot of uh, verses in scripture that incite the the ire and the anger of uh, the world in general uh, for many many years one of them has been uh, Genesis 1 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and for, for years and years, I have uh, uh, argued with those who believe in evolution or theistic evolution, which is neither theistic nor evolutionary, but uh, that the Bible makes it clear, not just in Genesis, but throughout the book, that God is the creator and that he created the heavens and the earth. And uh, I was always uh, derided and mocked as 
not believing science. You don't believe science. You're, you're just ignorant. You're, you're just willfully ignorant. Well, now we've come to a day and a time where another verse in Genesis chapter 1 uh, cannot be believed. Verse 27 that says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. That is the most basic fact of biology. People are born with an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. There are two genders. They are male and female. So to all the evolutionists, don't bring science up to me again. You don't get to. Unless you believe the basic facts of biology, sorry, we're not going there. But one verse of scripture that you're sure to get mocked about is where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The exclusivity of Christ for salvation is a doctrine that the world, and again, sadly, much of the church just cannot accept. It is so contrary to the permissive spirit of our times that it's hardly safe to utter it, except behind the brick walls of church buildings. That is because any such claim to truth which Christianity makes is perceived to be narrow and bigoted and intolerant and hateful and wicked and cruel and vile, the kind of thinking that has led to genocide and religious wars or witch hunts doesn't lead to any of those things if properly followed, as we shall see. Uh, I, had a, I had a conversation with a, a fellow one time about... Uh, about this very thing. And he, he made the statement to me, which you hear a lot, there's been more people killed in religious wars than all the rest of the wars in the world combined. First of all, that's just patently false. That is not true. Stalin killed at least 15 million people in his purge in Soviet Russia. Nowhere near that many have been killed in religious wars. There have been people killed in religious wars. I will admit that during the Crusades, other times. But people engaged in those things contrary to what the Word of God teaches, not because of what the Word of God teaches. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. The teaching that there is only one way to God is the natural outcome of the gospel of grace which Paul has been expounding in the book of Romans. He's talked about humanity's failure to live up to God's standard. He says there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks God. He has carefully unfolded God's plan of salvation through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, proving that the salvation that is provided by God through the work of Christ becomes ours by simple faith. And three natural conclusions are inferences from these doctrines, uh, among which is the teaching of the terms of salvation. There is one way of salvation for everybody. Those three conclusions we talked about last week, we looked at the first one, is that salvation by grace through faith excludes boasting. Well, what of boasting? 
it is excluded. You can't boast. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, excludes boasting. And secondly, salvation by grace through faith means that there is one way of salvation for everybody. For the Jew and the Gentile. That's everybody in the world. Everybody in the world is either a Jew or a Gentile. Wherever they may be, whatever they may have done, whatever they may not have done, doesn't matter. There's one way of salvation, only one for everybody. And thirdly, salvation by grace through faith upholds the law of God rather than subverting it as some claim. That's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week as we finish up this third chapter. But the second point is the one that Paul develops here in Romans 3, 29 and 30. These verses teach that there is only one way of salvation and that that follows logically from the fact that there is only one God. God is the God of all. So the salvation he provides is but one salvation for everyone. So far from being narrow or sectarian, this view swings open the door of heaven wide enough for anyone to go in, anyone who believes. There is room for everyone. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There is only one way to God. That is through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to examine this truth under two categories, prejudices and possibilities. Each nation has its own set of prejudices, of course, and it is helpful in trying to appreciate the text to realize that Paul was running up against two entirely different set of prejudices as he composed the verses. First set was those of the Jew who believed in one God but did not believe in salvation for the Gentiles. Then of the Gentiles who believed in salvation for everyone or at least the possibility of salvation for everyone but they did not believe in one God. So the thief the chief theological tenet of Judaism was its monotheism, and it still is today. Judaism is a religion of prayers and sayings, and chief among them is what is called the Shema, Hebrew for hear, and it was recited as a confession of faith prior to the reading of formal prayers in the uh, synagogues each Sabbath. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This was among the greatest of the sayings of uh, the Old Testament. And we're told that it was to be kept before the people always, to impress them on your children. Tell them about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them 
on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Nothing so distinguish the Jew from his pagan neighbors as his fierce and uncompromising monotheism. Nothing made his life more difficult, but nothing was more to his credit. While the nations around him worshipped thousands of debased deities, like those described in uh, Romans 1, images made to look like mortal man, and birds and animals and reptiles, the Jew maintained the highest conception of the one God, and they contended for him. But with that fierce, uncompromising monotheism, unfortunately, came also what one commentator calls a degenerate theocratic exclusiveness. I, I, I love phrases like that, don't you? A degenerate theocratic exclusiveness. That is, they scorned the Gentiles to the point of supposing them to be scorned by God also. I told you that one of the, one of the prominent rabbis, one of the prominent teachers of uh, the, the pre-New Testament times said that God had created Gentiles so that there would always be fuel for the flames of hell. In, in the liturgy uh, that a Jew repeated every morning, he thanked God that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. The Jew said that God loves Israel alone of all the nations of the earth. Now, a Gentile could be saved, but they had to become a Jew first. That, that's the main point of contention in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. There were those who wanted them to come into the church as long as they first became a Jew. Well, if, if you'll keep these dietary restrictions, if you'll do this and this and this and this, then you can be a Christian. Jewish monotheism did not extend out far enough to save the Gentile or a Gentile without Judaism. However, the Gentiles had some overwhelming problems of their own. Whereas Judaism had a monotheism with an accompanying exclusiveness, the Gentiles had tolerance without monotheism, uh, which is not something any thoughtful person would really prefer if they were a thoughtful person. <laughs> it was said of Athens that there were more gods in the city than people. That's Athens, Greece, not Tennessee. But that could be true here also. What is worse, these many and diverse gods permitted and even encouraged some of the most morally debased practices. Greece was a moral cesspool from the start of the Christian era, and Rome soon became worse. To those who know the characteristics of these times, the, the, the portrait of a pagan society that Paul draws in Romans chapter 1 is not an exaggeration. It was horrible. Uh, 1988, I went to India for 17 days preaching. The Hindu religion has 333 million deities, and they are adding gods all of the time. There's all kinds of, of temples to local gods. 
And the, the thing of, of having many gods is they're, they're very uh, localized. I mean, and, and they're very hard to, if you pacify one god, you make another one angry. See, it, it, it's hard to keep them all pacified. It, it's an impossible situation. So, we've got this situation of the Jew and the Gentile. One believes in monotheism, but scorns all the rest of the world. The other has many, many gods rather than the one true God. So, if we are firm in our conception of the, of the one great and moral God who is the source of all good, it would seem that it is uh, natural that we would become narrow, which is probably true. You do become a bit narrow. I mean, you have to. You know, I had a fellow tell me one time, he said, Brother Bob, you're so narrow-minded, you think only the Baptists are going to heaven. I said, I'm more narrow-minded than that. I, a bunch of Baptists ain't going to make it either. You know, so it, 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 the, Jesus did say, straight is the gate, narrow is the way. However, that does not mean that the concept of one God and of one way to him makes you self-righteous or bigoted in any way. <coughs> and it's not only the Jew who has been like this. If we are broad in our doctrine, believing that all religions are equally right, and believing that whatever God or God's suits our fancy is permissible, we soon plunge into polytheism and depravity. So what's the solution? How can anyone find a way out of this dilemma? And the solution is the gospel that Paul has been expounding. It retains the great high principle of Jewish monotheism, for it is the gospel that there is only one God. He subsists in three persons. And from this one God comes one gospel. It flows from his grace. It has been accomplished by his son who died for us. And it requires us to be like him. Not only to love our friends, but to love our enemies as well. At the same time, the gospel does not promote any kind of exclusiveness. For it's a gospel that is offered to all alike. Doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. Doesn't matter what country you come from. Doesn't matter your level of education. Makes no difference. Apart from any religious advantage or disadvantage, any understanding or lack of understanding, good works, evil deeds, doesn't matter. The gospel is for everyone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So that, that's the situation of the prejudices that Paul is writing about in that world. Ones that we have today. Some of the temples that I went to in India, I, I thought, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like these people. This darkness, this depravity. And then I thought, no, I'm just like these people. Because all of us have things that we put in front of God. And when we do... We become an idolater. Perhaps the greatest sin in America today is covetousness. We want what someone else has. And Paul plainly said in the book of Colossians, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. 
We all have idols in our heart. We may not have fashioned an image out of wood or stone or gold, but there are ideas and philosophies that come before God. Materialism, worldliness, all of these things. We need to keep that in mind at all, at all times. So now, I want to apply the gospel as developed in Romans 3 as universally as possible. And my method here is simple. I want to tell you that whoever you are, whatever you may be or may not have done, whatever you, your background is, the gospel is for you because it's for everybody. I want you to see that if you come to God in the way that he has appointed for you to come, that is through faith in Jesus Christ who died for you, he will receive you and he will never cast you out. Three questions, very important. Number one, who may come? And the answer is everybody. Everybody's lost in sin. And everybody alike are the objects of Jesus' saving love. The preceding portions of Romans show that the gospel is for the very great sinner. It's also for the very moral person. It's for the pagan as well as one who considers himself to be religious. If you're a great sinner... You may come. Those described in Romans 1 and 2 were great sinners. And yet, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is available to them. If you're self-righteous, you may come. Romans 2 talks about those who are self-righteous. And yet, you may come to Jesus if you are self-righteous. What's your sin? Pride, murder, stealing, adultery? Doesn't matter. Come to Jesus. And you will be well received. Jesus said, John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. What about your profession? Minister, gambler, banker, businessman, insurance man, housewife, painter, school teacher? Doesn't matter. You may come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. What's your condition? You seeking God? You running away from him? You fighting God? Questioning God? Doubting God? Don't believe in God? Come to Jesus. He is the answer. Maybe you're an indifferent sort of person. Maybe you're like a guy I heard told the pastor that he went to church whenever his friends thought he needed a little dose of religion. <laughs> there are a lot of people who do that. There's a lot of people who have a little dose of religion and they've been inoculated against saving faith because they think a little dose of religion is enough. Religion doesn't save anybody. Jesus Christ saves come to Christ if you're indifferent come to Jesus how may I come come just the way you are years ago uh, I remember as a young man uh, something became rather popular it was called come as you are parties and they start you start calling people and they were supposed to come as they were if, you know if they were painting a garage they came and closed with you know, paint spattered all over them, you know, whatever. If you were in your pajamas, you came in your pajamas, it was come as, come as you are. Uh, didn't matter. That's how you come to Jesus. You're invited to come just as you are. Well, I'm a, I'm a great sinner. I've done horrible things. Come to Jesus. All of us are great sinners. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, once said, there is enough sin in the noblest prayer that I have ever prayed to damn the whole world. That is true. 
Some come running to Jesus. I'll never forget a man that was in a church that I pastored about 40 years ago. Jack used to sing in bars all the time, and he had a really good voice, uh, but just a man who just didn't, didn't care about God. And his children started coming to the church, and, and uh, one night his little boy left to, to go to church, and he told his dad, he said, Daddy, you know, if you don't come to Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And Jack was sitting there in a pair of blue jeans and shirt off and no shoes, no socks. And He sat there and he said, the longer I thought about it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, if I don't come to Jesus, I'm going to hell. If I don't come to Jesus, I'm going to hell. And so he jumped up off the stoop, took off to the church, which was about a half a mile away, burst in the back door, come flying down the aisle, and said to the preacher, i got to come to Jesus, got to come right now. Scared the preacher to death, you know. But he did. He, came, he literally came running to Christ, convicted of his sin. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to get a look at Jesus. Peter jumped into the water, swimming across the Sea of Galilee. Preaching the gospel to people like this is like putting a dollar in a soft drink machine. The result is immediate. Most of the time now it says you haven't got to put enough money in. But anyway, come to Jesus. Others come limping, poor, faltering, hesitating steps. That's all right. They may come too. Some people come kicking and screaming. Paul was reluctant. I mean, Jesus plainly said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. St. Augustine resisted until God finally reached him in a garden near an estate in Milan, hearing some children singing, take up and read. And he took up the Bible and read a passage from the book of Romans and was converted. C.S. Lewis described him himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But they came. How do you come? Just the way you are. And when may you come? Anytime. If you understand what sin is, you know you are a sinner, and you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, then come. Young, old, doesn't matter. Come to Jesus. Come to him now. Is God... The God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. There is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Americans, Asians, black, white, red, yellow, doesn't matter. There is one gospel. It is a gospel for everyone. Everyone may come. They may come just as they are in their condition right now. No matter who they are, where they are, no matter what they have done, the gospel is for everyone. We are commanded to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a moment, we're going to have a word of prayer.
Then we're going to sing a closing hymn.